When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Etaf Rum, author of the novel Evil Eye. Women are required to be a certain way in order to be loved, in order to be accepted by their mother, by their father, by their children, by their husband. They have to act in a certain way in order to get love. We'll be back with Etaf Rum after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is how did we get to 9,000 hours is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. 
please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is Etaf Rum, author of the novel A Woman is No Man, which was a New York Times bestseller and a Read with Jenna Today book club pick. Rum was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and her family members are immigrants from Palestine. She now lives in North Carolina and owns a coffee shop and bookstore called Books and Beans. Her new novel is called Evil Eye and tells the story of a young Palestinian-American woman named Yara, who works as a teacher and graphic designer at a college. She is placed on probation at work after a fight with a racist co-worker ensues. Her Palestinian mother claims the provocation and fallout is the result of a family curse. While Yara doesn't believe in old superstitions, she finds herself unpacking her strict, often volatile childhood growing up in Brooklyn, where her father abused her mother and the expectations for her life were incredibly limited. Although she has married, gotten an education, and is the mother of two children, she is still stuck. She is becoming more estranged from her husband as the novel progresses, and as she digs deeper into her inherited and direct trauma, she must confront who she wants to become in the future. We began the discussion with me asking Etaf Rum about a line in the beginning of the book. With Evil Eye, you have a prologue, and there's something you say in the very beginning of the prologue, and it's, there are some things language cannot communicate. And I'm curious about that sentiment and how you feel about that since you're a writer. Yes. With this prologue, I actually wrote it at the very end of the manuscript. And it was the same thing with A Woman Is No Man. Both of my prologues came after the novel had been complete. And in Evil Eye, the idea that language is inadequate was something that I felt throughout the process of writing the novel. The idea that it was hard for me to capture the essence of the trauma in a way that I felt did the trauma justice. And as much as I love writing and I love words and I love reading, I understood innately that there was only so much I can communicate through words. And that there are some things that some some emotions and events that language often is inadequate and incomplete, specifically when it comes to trauma. And so that was what I was referencing in that passage specifically. And have you felt that in your life? And if language is inadequate, how do you how do you express that? That's a really interesting question. I'm really glad you're asking. And I look at this question from two points of view. Number one, 
is that trauma for trauma survivors is hard to access into language because it diminishes the event, but also as a woman that comes from a community that has encouraged silence and voicelessness, that it's often hard to find the words when you're coming from that place. And so for me personally, as a woman, I've had to use writing in a way to find my voice, but then also feeling like I didn't have the right language and the tools to really express myself, partly because I've spent my life silent. And then another part is because the trauma felt so big that any attempt to put it in words, even after putting it in words, still doesn't feel like I've put it in words. Um, and that is a sad feeling as a writer. But um, I think there's hope that maybe the next time I'll be able to put it in words. Maybe, maybe it's a practice, like writing about your emotions and writing about these hard places, especially when you are a woman that has been used to silencing yourself or doubting yourself that it's going to take me a while to build my voice and to build that ability to find the right word, to capture the right feeling. Would it feel like a loss to you if there actually wasn't a way to express that in writing, but there were other ways in your life to express it? No, it, it wouldn't feel like a loss. I think I've come to accept that and that comes full circle to your question is that I've come to accept that words are powerful, but sometimes they're not enough. And as a writer, a writer and an artist, and as someone who is on a mission to heal and to use writing and literature as a way to heal, but also as, or also knowing that even if they don't bring me healing, they're just one part of the journey that Words and, and writing are not the end-all be-all to, to healing and understanding and even self-expression, but there are other ways that are not tied to language in which we can come closer to knowing who we truly are and understanding it that don't have to do with words. Yeah, I feel like you at least touched on in your character, Yara, who, um, just to explain a little bit about the book, and please correct me if I it don't explain it right, but this story is about a character named Yara. So Yara comes from a Palestinian family and was raised in Brooklyn, and she had a, not a fully arranged marriage, but a semi, I guess it was semi, I mean, she could choose, but she had like limited options. And she got married, moved to North Carolina, and just always had this but trauma inside of her, it, some of it's, you know, generational trauma from not being able to be in your homeland. And some of it is immediate from her own family and seeing the abuse between her parents and her mother's unhappiness in living the life she lived. And so she carried this with her into her marriage and into her motherhood and into her career. And I think uh, in a lot of ways just couldn't express it. She was depressed and sad and just questioning why she was around. So this is kind of the background for her. And then the the real details in the story are that she gets fired from her job and she finds herself with all this time on her hands and really having confront this as her marriage seems to fall apart. So one of the things she does is she goes to therapy and she starts to realize 
through her body, through her physical presence in the world is where she can also hold and heal trauma. And that seemed like it was important to you to express. So I just wanted to ask you about that too. Yes. Thank you so much. Such a thoughtful question. I'll answer it from, from care, from Yara's point of view, living in a world where women must always have a function. So she grew up in this society where a woman was supposed to look like a certain way, a mother, a wife, very, very obedient, always has dinner on the stove. The always, you know, put her children first, put her husband first. And so there's this, there has been this sort of disconnect from the body. And Yara is witnessing this first and foremost through the women in her family and, and their almost automatic behavior. Um, and also from the things that her mother didn't do. So it, in, in her mom, you get sort of like the rebel. So we know what a woman is supposed to look like in society. And then we have the mother who is not quite fitting into that role, rebelling against it. And so as a child being witnessing this type of these expectations and then the resistance to these expectations, she always found it more comfortable to escape her body in those those moments of trauma, whether it's listening to her parents' abuse or being made to feel small and irrelevant. The safest way for her was to escape her body in order to survive. And I'm sure for her mother and her grandparents, survival to them was pushing through, pushing through. And that means you're up here in your mind most of the time and you're not really centered. You're not still, you're not inside your body. And so for her, this has been a learned behavior. And towards the end of the novel, personally, I was also struggling through what does it look like to fully heal? And it's not just intellectual healing, which is journaling. There's also, it's not just about that. And I, and that to me was important because it was something that I was recognizing in my own life. I had written a story of trauma with a woman is no man. That was the first time I'd ever written. I'd felt, I felt a sort of power that I'd never felt in my life, but I had succeeded in verbalizing something that I had spent my whole life repressing. And yet still, despite that, I felt so disconnected from myself, my physical self. And to me, the way of healing, and I'm still learning, was to sit inside the sensations in my body, was to notice how often I wasn't in, I wasn't still, I was up here, I was planning, uh, preparing, afraid, overly critical, overly controlling, just trying to stop the world from hurting me. And it was very important for me to verbalize this in the novel, but also to adapt some of these strategies myself of mindfulness and stillness and knowing that trauma first and foremost is a, a, psych, a physiological thing to be dealt with. I think even more important than it, it is to verbalize. I think the body is the first and foremost the Body Keeps the Score was one of the books that I think I had read that opened my eyes to just the extent of how much I had trapped in my body and how much I needed to pay more attention. I'm curious if, though also, if the act of writing for you feels like a physical act. And so I don't mean what you were saying about journaling is maybe being an intellectual exercise that your character takes part in that her therapist had recommended. But if just the physical act of writing has an effect on you. 
Yes. I mean, I don't think I can stop writing. I think writing has become integral to my ability to live in this world, my ability to communicate with the world in a way that I can control. I can sit in silence. I can go into these places unknowingly when, when this divine sort of presence takes hold of me when I'm writing in those moments and I just let go of any intellectual expectation. It just becomes this purging. It's really essential to my ability to cope with the world, I believe. So yeah, it's very important. Well, let's talk a little bit about Yara. Um, one of the essential elements, I think, of this story that I didn't mention when I was describing it is like that there's this curse um, on this family. And and that's, I think, where the title comes from as well, the Evil Eye, that her mother went to see a fortune teller and the fortune teller did not see good things and basically said that she's cursed. And there's also a moment where the mother tells Yara that she's cursed. And I'm curious about this whole idea for you, where it was born from and, and what it means to you to put a curse on someone in, t- in terms of your characters. So the idea of a curse came very gradually. I mean, I knew there was going to be a curse in the novel, but this idea of a family curse, it sort of happened in layers. And I thought it perfectly captured the dilemma of this family who did indeed feel like they were cursed in the Israeli occupation of Palestine. You know, when I think about my grandmother telling me stories of when she was a child and witnessing her parents in the Israeli occupation at gunpoint, witnessing their olive trees burning, uh, remembering what it was like to walk miles and miles until they found a barren land in which they set up nylon tents, remembering the smell of the feces in the tents. <laughs> it makes me really emotional just to talk about it. But um, my grandmother definitely believed that Palestinians in general were under a curse, that, that this was their fate and that they are still under this oppression and war and violence. And the idea then that the generations, the next generation, which would have been, which would have been Yara's mother's generation that escaped Palestine and managed to get a ticket to America and come to America, that curse never left them. That displacement, that loss, that, suffering, that trauma never left them. Of course, it didn't leave them because it's generational. And so to me, the idea of tying evil eye um, to the idea of passing down intergenerational trauma, even now in America, when Yara has the freedom, freedoms that her parents and grandparents would dream of having, she could still, she could still feel the curse in her body. In a sense, I wanted to tie trauma our limited beliefs and our old stories and our narratives and how they define us. And in this, and in this sense, it's this family's really dark history because it's unhealed and unacknowledged. It essentially feels like a curse. And, at, you know, we laugh at Yara's mom when she says you're cursed, but as a writer, I, I felt like, yeah, she, she is cursed. It's more of a psychological curse than it is like an actual curse. And I wanted to explore how 
different generations can view superstition and curses in different ways and how we can tie that to, you know, healing from the mindset of being cursed. So that's really essentially what trauma is, is that you're trying to heal from that mindset that the world is a dark place. And to me, Evil Eye became much more about Yara's view of the world and her lens of the world, which was so dis- distorted because of who she was and where she came from. So when you did start writing this book, did you start from that place? Like you didn't know what your characters were going to be, but you know you wanted to go about trauma and somehow you started writing a story? Or did you have some vision of your characters first at the same time? Or maybe it's another, none of those. So when I finished writing A Woman Is No Man, I immediately started writing Evil Eye. Immediately. Like it didn't even take a break, which probably was a mistake. The reason why I immediately started writing is because I had a story in mind, which was in my first novel, it was specifically about this Palestinian immigrant who comes to America, who's struggling with the language, who's struggling with or a source of patriarchal and misogynistic issues in her family. But it was still about this immigrant. And even though the story was told, we had an 18-year-old Daya who we see wants to go to college. The story ends there. And it didn't feel to me, it felt to me like I had more to say about what happens to a woman like Daya who grows up and gets married? What happens to those women that witness abuse growing up? How do they heal? How do they get past what they've witnessed? How do they prevent the trauma from moving on to their to their children? That was really the essential question that I felt like I needed to explore through my writing. And that's when Yara was born. Yara to me was a woman who didn't really overcome her trauma and thought she did because she succeeded in the ways that the women in her family didn't. And to me, that alone was, oh yeah, I know so many women like this. And I need to tell this story because this is the modern Arab story. Whereas A Woman is No Man was setting the scene and giving you the background of these characters. It was set in the 90s and the early 2000s. With Yara, it's like those char- that character grew up and now she's here and we still have all this baggage, but it's repressed and she thinks she's okay, but she's not. Now, how do I tell her story in the best way that I can? And that's where I started. Yeah, because for her, and I think this was like a big misunderstanding or like cognitive dissonance for Yara, mm-hmm. was that she saw that her mother had to take care of six children and was inside the home and couldn't be educated. And she was, I guess, allowed or had the circumstances, you could say, where she could go to college and she could get a master's degree and she could get a job. And her husband was totally open to that, whereas her father was not open to that. So I think Mm -hmm. she, when she decided to marry him, she thought she was gaining all this freedom. But I think what she didn't realize was it doesn't matter if you can do all those things if inside you're so unsettled. And that I think was her primary, at least cognitive struggle that she thought she had this freedom and she didn't. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great way of putting it. It, it, This story is very much an internal story on the outside. Everything looks good. And that cognitive dissonance 
is the reality of so many women who come from these back bad backgrounds. There's an almost guilt for thinking that there's even anything wrong, even though you feel it in your body, you feel that you're unsettled and you feel that, why am I not satisfied? Why, why can I just be happy with having this life? So there's so many layers and I felt that I, I needed to explore them. I couldn't write something else. As much as to be honest, I didn't want to write another trauma novel. I didn't feel, I mean, and I wrote this novel during COVID, so it was a nightmare, you know, emotionally. But uh, I needed answers to these questions. And I thought that exploring them through Yara would help me have the courage to explore them within myself. And did it? Yeah, I did. I grow and become a different person with each novel I'm realizing. So I'm I'm a different person now than I was before I started writing Evil Eye. Yara taught me a lot. A lot of how I delude myself and a lot she taught me the extent in which I self-abandon and how much how much I've been taught to self-abandon as a young age. And deciding to write Evil Eye and even a woman is no man, despite how painful it was to write, was the first time in my life that I didn't self-abandon. It was the first time in my life that I said, I'm gonna write about this. I'm gonna force myself to go there because I owed it to myself to try to find the words, even when the words felt so out of reach and to try to maybe help someone else through the process that it, themselves are struggling to find the words. So I do feel much more empowered after this process that, you know what, I, I didn't give up. I, I did this for this child who never had the chance or was never able to be heard. With Yara, I mean, one of the other, I mean, she had all this internally. She had this trauma. She had this generational trauma. She had this cognitive dissonance, but she also had this husband named Fadi. And he basically was a gaslighter. I mean, he, she would tell him how he felt and he would just dismiss her and think she was being overly dramatic, couldn't understand why she wasn't happy. So she also had some real external challenges in her day-to-day life and just wanted to ask you about this element of the story. I struggled a little bit with Fadi at at first because I wanted to paint an accurate picture of this woman and what her life, her external life looks like and how that might be leading to the internal problems or contributing somewhat to the internal problems she was having. But I didn't want to write another novel about an abusive marriage and men are, you know, husbands are oppressing their wives. And I just felt like that did a disservice to what I was trying to do. So a lot of times, it took me a while to get to the heart of, well, what is the, what is the problem here with Fadi and Yara? What, where's the disconnect? What's, you know, is it, he's not a villain. I'm not trying to paint him as a villain, but I did want, I did want to the reader to like understand that Yara was essentially replaying some of the same dynamics in her marriage with Fadi that she had seen growing up with her parents, except Fadi just wasn't as, you know, wasn't a bad person. He just didn't really hear her. He couldn't understand her. He didn't acknowledge her. 
And that was also due to his own trauma and his own feelings of, well, I'm doing the best that I can. Bevy is also a victim of trauma in his own way, in his own upbringing. And I thought it was really interested, interesting to bring two people who come from a similar background, who have both experienced similar traumas in some way. How, you know, how does that come together in a marriage? And that to me was what I wanted to explore with Fadi. Not necessarily to make him a villain. Yeah, she had extra pressure too because his mom was, <laughs> she was a doozy. She, I mean, you open with the sort of dinner scene with the mother-in-law and she's just like from the very beginning, she just doesn't let up. She's like picking at Yara and like wants her to be a certain way and she's not that way and she will not let up. Yeah, that that scene was also one of the things that, you know, naturally came later when, when I realized, okay, this would be a great scene to open the novel because it just highlighted And this, I'm talking specifically about the dinner scene. So Yara has dinner with Fadi and his in-laws, you know, once a week. And we open up the novel, just seeing what this routine is like for Yara and what the relationship is between the mother-in-law and Yara and how it's it's automatic. We automatically see what the expectations are and all the ways in which Yara is failing to meet those expectations. In a way, what my, her mother-in-law is, is essentially what her community has been her whole life. It's just we see it exemplified in this very one character. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I will say that Yara seems like she is an amazing cook. Yes, cooking is a love language in its own. And we see that it's very prominent in many Arab and Palestinian homes. And I really wanted to lighten up the novel with this very real love of cooking and sharing food and sharing recipes uh, with each other. Food is a beautiful way to bring people together, especially in, in Palestinian houses. Are you a good cook? Yes. Yes, I love I love food. I love Middle Eastern food. It's just certain smells and and tastes just take me back to those to those happy times with with my family in Palestine. Yara makes friends with this gay man named Silas, who she taught with, who teaches culinary arts. And she is teaching him how to cook some Middle Eastern foods. This is kind of like her first friend. She's very, Yara's very isolated. And at first she's very nervous because he's a man and she doesn't know if she should tell her husband that she is developing this friendship with him. And at first she didn't know that he was gay. And so it was maybe more threatening. Like she didn't know what he wanted from her, but he was just a kind person. And that was really hard for her to almost like accept like the randomness of someone just wanting to be your friend and seeing you like being seen. And he really offered this to her. Yeah. It's, it's so nice hearing you talk about your perception of what you read, because that's exactly what I, I wanted the reader to feel. I wanted the reader to feel that this was a huge for Yara, that she, she, you know, she doesn't have much experience with friends and letting her guard down and that it was a shock at first to her 
to even accept that, oh, I can open up to someone. I can, I can let my guard down. They're not going to hurt me. And I can be myself and speak my mind without being dismissed or gaslighted or made to feel like I was too sensitive or too crazy. I loved Silas for that. And again, Silas was another character that the I didn't have an agenda for him. He just, he appeared and then transformed as I was writing the novel into so many things until finally he settled into what he was. And I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what Yara needs. She needs a friend, someone to support her that doesn't want anything from her, like a relationship or just someone to see her and to see her struggles for, for what they are and to just listen. So because you started writing this like right out of your last um, novel and you said you didn't, you didn't know at first, you just had this character, Mm -hmm. this woman, and you started writing and then you were just mentioning how Silas came in. You didn't know where he would fit Mm -hmm. at first. Like what Mm -hmm. is your actual process? Do you just write and write and write and all of a sudden you say, okay, this is the direction and scrap a lot of pages? Like, is it, could you describe that? I've only written two novels. So this is my process for this novel. (laughs) So for this novel, my process was, all right, I have a woman and I know her arc. That was my process. Like she starts here and her arc is towards healing and self-empowering, like, you know, standing up for herself and fulfilling her desires. And that that was the, the main arc. I asked myself, okay, so what's important to me? It's getting her family background and her history. How do I get that in? So it's asking myself questions about, all right, what, what am I trying to do? And then how can I do that? And the story came about naturally in terms of explaining Yara's, Yara's relationship with her mother. That was very, that was, that just came with the territory that came with Yara. Like I didn't have to think of how to make that. It just, it came her relationship with her husband and her in-laws. I don't want to say a stereotypical statement, but this is a stereotypical statement. It's the norm. Yara is the norm. Eight out of 10 people live like Yara. In, in people that I know, community from the communities that I come from, communities who were raised on trauma, displacement, uh, repressing your emotions, mental health is still a stigma, mental illness is still a stigma. Women have to be the ones that absorb all the emotions of the family, that take care of all the emotional needs of the family, that it doesn't matter if you're educated or not your family and your children and your husband come first. And what that means is self-abandoning always. That's what that means. And so to me, that part of the story was already there. So it was more of outlining a storyline. And then Silas comes in and the idea of a curse comes in. Those things as 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 this novel simmers and I'm writing these scenes, you know, the core scenes, I start getting glimpses of, oh yeah, yeah, she's, they're cursed. Obviously they should be cursed. Why shouldn't they be cursed? You know? And then, and then it's like, okay, I don't want her to have a love interest because that's not the point of the story. The point, you know, so it's these things like come naturally as I'm, as I'm outlining the character. So most of the work to me starts with the character and their arc, and then everything else just settles in after that. That's where all the work is for, I think all the, both of my novels is finding out what the arc is for these characters one of the things I'm I'm curious about is the inciting incident in the book that sort of broke Yara, which was she 
was she wanted to do more teaching and she didn't get to do a lot more teaching. I felt like there was the, she was being held back by her boss and she did the social mm-hmm. media and the photography for this university she worked at, but she taught one art class and there's an opportunity where they're looking for instructors to chaperone a trip to Scandinavia for the students. And she really wants to go. And her husband's like, you, you really can't be gone for that long. So it's sort of cut off at home And it's like a great sorrow for her, but she's also confronted with these other instructors, especially this one really bitchy white woman who has a lot of entitlement, who kind of says to her, I don't have the page open exactly, but kind of like, well, like women in your culture can't do this. And, Uh um, Yara calls her out. She calls her a racist bitch, which she was. Um, but she gets in trouble for that. And that really starts to spiral her descent, at least at school and eventually losing her job. And she was only calling out what was true, but of course the white dominated society didn't support her. So I was also curious about this element cause it's very important to the book. Yeah. So this is one of those elements that I felt naturally had to happen in a sense to kind of bring out the main conflicts of the novel, which were Yara's struggles between trying to be an acceptable woman in her culture and her marriage and her family versus the image of herself that she feels like she has to put out to the world in order to combat any stereotypes about her inferiority as a woman or a the difficulties that women like her have. So she, there's this constant awareness of what she's projecting and also the unfairness that she has, that she essentially knows that Amanda, the coworker that says the racist comments, she kind of knows that there's some truth to it. But then she's appalled by the idea that there's some truth to it and appalled by the idea that she still has to defend herself in this country that she was born in, despite all the ways in which she's tried to get away from that image. And I, I really, I really feel this personally all the time, even now as a New York Times bestselling author, I still feel this in in certain situations and talking to certain people because I'm a woman of color, they'll turn around and look at my husband and say, Oh, you know, X, Y, Z kind of like, because you're the man. And, and a part of it is because this is Southern culture. Like I'm, I still am surrounded by Southerners who are no, no different from Arabs in my opinion, but it's still something that I face as a woman in the South and as an Arab woman. And so naturally I thought that it was a scene that needed to be utilized in the novel to bring about all these different layers of conflict that our protagonist is dealing with. It was probably a blessing in the end. Not that that happened, but that she got out of teaching. I mean, like she got, she did get fired, but it gave her the space, which just shows like to heal. Sometimes we just cannot keep going on with our daily lives and expect us Mm -hmm. and, and, and expect progress. Yes. Sometimes we need an awakening, something to disrupt us. Absolutely. And for Yara, that was a necessary event that needed to happen in order for her 
to maybe step into the unknown of, okay, well, my worst fear has been stripped away because essentially that was her worst fear was being like her mother in terms of not having anything of her own. She, she desperately, she couldn't be an artist. She was too sheltered to travel and make art in the way that she, her soul wanted. She was already married and having children at a young age. So the next best thing was to at least teach to someone else, at least have some sort of agency over her career. And when that's stripped away from her, it's, it's really a rock bottom in terms of, okay, I don't have agency. My life isn't what I thought it was. I'm not as empowered and independent and strong as I thought I was. So like, what do I do from here? How does superstition fit into all this? So superstition in its most obvious sense is a fear and a belief that something will happen if you do, if you do an activity or behave a certain way. To me, I was more interested in the idea of superstition as the limiting beliefs that we have on ourselves. So not so much about the curse itself and like, oh, if you walk under a ladder, you're going to lose all your money. Not in that sense, but how a certain belief, because that's what superstitions are, their beliefs, how it's the belief that has the power over you, not the action. And so for, for Yara, what she actually had to overcome throughout the novel is how much these limited beliefs of who she was and what women should behave and look like, those were the beliefs that she had to shed in order to grow. It was more about the internal narratives that she grew up on and she absorbed as, okay, this is how the world is. The world is unsafe. Women are required to be a certain way in order to be loved, in order to be accepted by their mother, by their father, by their children, by their husband. They have to act in a certain way in order to get love. And they can't put themselves first. They have to be the the daughter that like understands or the, the mother that puts her children first or the wife that takes care of her house and takes care of her husband. So that that was to me the the hardest thing for Yara to overcome is letting go of those old narratives and finding a way closer to honoring herself in the novel. I wanted to ask you though, also you own a bookshop? Yes. It's a, it's a coffee shop, but we do sell a small selection of books rotated, rotating them. What's been the most like surprising, but interesting part of owning a coffee shop? that so many people come to visit that have read the novel from surrounding states. They'll change their route if they're traveling to stop and come say hello, have their book signed. It's just been incredible. You know, as writers, we live so isolated, or at least I do. I'm often alone. I'm often in my head and I'm often just trying to create. And I forget that what I'm creating is being read and felt by other people and that it's leaving an impact on them, even though in my mind, um, it's so personal and it, it's so all consuming. There's like a beauty of when it leaves you and when these books, when they're done and they leave you the impact that they have. And then I come, I get to see, I'm lucky that I, that I have a, a spot where people come to see me and to tell me what they thought about the novels and these characters. So that's been so nice. 
since you are the owner of a coffee shop, do you think there's a certain amount of time that someone can buy a coffee and stay there and write all day before they have to buy something else? No, I encourage people to come and do their work and sit as long as they want. I like, I love that. I love that. I mean, as someone that frequents coffee shops, I mean, I will grab, I mean, I'll have a lot of things when I'm there just because I'm probably hungry and I need another matcha. I need a turmeric latte. I need a cappuccino. You know, like I'll just use, I'm writing. I, I need to support my brain. So, you know, I'll, but um, as an owner of a coffee shop, I love looking at the floor and seeing people on their laptops or reading a novel. I don't, don't buy anything. The fact that there's a, there's a space here and you're utilizing that space and it's bringing you peace in some way. I don't, I don't really think about it and like how many items you have to buy. That's, that's not what these spaces are for. You know, I'm feeling like when I visit, I want to have like a halava chai. <laughs> I'll make that the special, the monthly special. We have the best chai. I think we have hands on the best trial that I've ever had, honestly. All right. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from a, an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? I am going to read... One of my favorite passages from The Bell Jar, which is one of my favorite novels. And um, I think Sylvia Plath really influenced what I thought of myself as an Arab woman. I thought, I feel this way and she's white and I'm Arab and I feel this way. So it was the first time that let me know, okay, I have these feelings and I could never articulate them. So she articulated them for me. For the first time in my life, sitting there in the soundproof heart of the UN building, between Constantine, who could play tennis as well as simultaneously interpret, and the Russian girl, who knew so many idioms, I felt dreadfully inadequate. The trouble was, I had been inadequate all along. I simply hadn't thought about it. I'm going to fast forward a couple of sentences. I saw my life branching out before me, like the green fig tree in the story. From the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband and a happy home and children, and another fig was a famous poet, and another fig was a brilliant professor, and another fig was E.G., the amazing editor, and another fig was Europe and Africa and South America, and another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila and a pack of other lovers, with queer names and offbeat professions. And another fig was an Olympic lady crew champion. And beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest. And as I sat there, Unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black. And one by one, they plopped to the ground at my feet. Do you want to say anything more about it? No, just that it's because of books and, and writers that, that 
I was able to articulate or learn how to articulate what it is that I truly wanted. And I'm so grateful for the Bojar and Sylvia Plath for that. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. For me, I will say that um, I'm going to read the the first page of Evil Eye, the prologue, because it was one of the very last things that I wrote. And uh, it was tricky in a sense, but it also just felt like it needed to go. So I'm going to read it. It needed to go where it was in the novel, like it needed to be written. I don't know why I'm writing this. William said it would help me articulate myself to you, reconcile past and present. I need to go back there, need to find a way to reach you, but I don't know how. I've never been good with words. There are some things language cannot communicate. Instead, I paint pictures in my mind. I build a white house with a colorful garden and a tranquil lake covered in emerald lily pads. Then I put myself inside of it. The rooms are bright and airy with big windows through which I watch the world. Outside, birds chirp and flowers bloom and everything feels calm between the wide, beneath the wide open sky. I close my eyes and paint more images, one stroke at a time, of sunflowers and sunsets and rooms full of books so I don't have to be alone. I try to listen to William's advice, to close my eyes and quiet the voices in my head. But when I begin to write down memories, attempt to lay them out in clear sentences, the words won't connect. When I look back for you, my mind goes blank. I can't describe it, this feeling I cannot name, this wound I cannot see. I feel it though, like every bone in my body is on fire. William says that writing can transform the unspeakable into a story. Only I don't want to tell a story. I want to break free. Do you want to share why you chose that? I chose it because um, I didn't know what I was writing when I decided to write this. The novel was already complete. We see snippets of Yara's journal throughout. I felt like Yara needed to say what it was she was trying to do, even though she couldn't say it. And I thought that that prologue really captured her her inadequacy, her feelings of inadequacy when it comes to language. And then the recognition that, okay, well, I don't, I'm not really trying to rewrite the narrative or tell a story. What I actually really want is to break free. And, and that sentence, that line, it just came. And I think that's, that's when I knew, all right, this, this is going to come right. This is coming at the beginning of the novel because it, it captured Yara's essence. Where do you write? I write either in coffee shops that are very busy, very loud, where people are moving all around me. I feel like it's easier for me to get lost when I'm surrounded by the hum of of people and spoons clinking and coffee steaming. If I can't write at the library, then I write. If I can't write at a coffee shop, then I'll choose someplace like a library where I could still watch people come and go. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? 
I like to take walks in nature between trees. Um, I read sometimes to clear my mind, listen to podcasts. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My agent, Julia Carden. How have you dealt with rejection? I pick myself up and try again. Rejection has come very naturally to me. <laughs> being born the way, you know, being raised in the community that I was raised. I feel like my whole life was a rejection. Uh, so <laughs> naturally, I'm very resilient and very driven and very stubborn. And when I think something is going to be a certain way, if I believe in something, there's, you could, a million people can reject me. I thought A Woman is a Man was going to be a New York Times bestseller before I started writing it. I just felt it. I'm like, there's no, there's no way. So, and it, it got rejected, but I think that I've built a resiliency to rejection. So now I just, it's just there, just another opinion. And what is your favorite word? Melancholy. Thank you so much. I'm so appreciative of this conversation. Oh, thank you so much. Such thoughtful questions and you're, you're such a beautiful soul. So I appreciate your time. If you like today's show with Itaf Rum, author of the novel Evil Eye, check out my interview with Layla Alamar, author of the novel Silence is a Sense. We talked about how trauma is individual and collective, creating intimacy for her mute character and overcoming stereotypes in the Islamic world. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 420 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months, interviews with Ben Fountain and Jen Shapland. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.